Well, we're continuing in our look at the seven words from the cross. Not seven singular words, but seven statements that Jesus spoke from the cross in what I would argue is His own sermon while He is actually working out our salvation. He is, he is explaining His work while He's actually doing it. No statement is more profound and, or more mysterious than the cry of Jesus from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But also, probably no statement is spoken from the cross that speaks um, so explicitly to what it is that, uh, that Jesus came to do and what it cost Him uh, to reconcile what He came to do, which is to reconcile you and I to Himself. It says in Matthew 27, verses 45-46, through 46, it says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, there was a point in the Upper Room Discourse the night before Jesus' crucifixion in which He tells His disciples that their courage, their strength, their assumed faith was not nearly as strong as they thought it was. And that once, once the crushing began, that they would flee for their lives. He said, he said each one of you will leave me. But he said something really interesting. He said, but I will not be alone for my Father will be with me. It's almost as if the forsaking, what we, uh, what we ponder, those of us who love theology, what does it mean for the Son to be separated from the Father? Uh, how can a triune God, remember, we're not, we're not, we're not polytheists. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God revealed in three persons. That God is within Himself a community. Uh, a community of perfect holy love. In fact, I would argue that the one attribute that we can apply to God in the abstract is love. For nowhere in Scripture does it say God is holiness. It says He is holy. But we are told something unique in 1 John that God is love and you know a lot of people get weirded out when we talk about God as love like it depersonalizes them I would say no what that statement does is it actually personalizes the word showing us that the love of God is different than the way that we utilize the word love that there is a perfect intimacy a, a singular focus and vision um, a love that is creative a love that is elective, a love that is, that is holy. When I say that God's love is elective, it means that God in His love has chosen to love sinners in their sin. And that is felt intensely here. But the thing that mystifies me, and I think we have to tread really carefully when we talk about this particular statement, because Jesus was silent 
he makes this one statement and then there's silence and there's darkness and that darkness I think uh, is meant to remind us that there are certain things that are that I think are now and actually will always be even in eternity a mystery of what happened how could there be a division within the Godhead how could there be a separation between the father and the son now many people have uh, throughout the church's history tried to come up with sort of systematic theologies that would explain this mystery but yes for us uh, revelation is is things that are revealed but there are hidden things and this is one of those things that is shrouded in mystery and I think is meant to be shrouded in mystery but there are some insights that we can gather from it and all I can say is the forsaking of Jesus whatever is going on within the Godhead itself all I can say is it is the essential ingredient to why it is that we 2,000 years later are able to sit here and even talk about him with excitement and with with a strong conviction that the best is yet to come because the worst that humanity could experience is separation from God and God was not content to leave us separated from himself and so he allowed himself to experience the separation that is the natural outcome of sin I want to give you an insight here because this is the thing is that I don't believe that Jesus saw the one the God who knows all things remember Jesus gave up his glory so when when the son of God became Jesus the God man when he cloaked himself in human flesh it says that he that he humbled himself that he he gave up his position of glory and we often think of Jesus kind of as the superman that he's actually just God masquerading as a man. No, he was fully man and he surrendered his power, his authority, all those things to the Father and he lived as a man in a broken world in a body that was that was aging and experiencing all I'm sure he got colds, I'm you know, he wasn't he he was perfect morally but he still entered into flesh and flesh always means in the new testament always has a a uh, a material uh, meaning but it also has a spiritual meaning and flesh generally is a negative word that speaks to the outcome of sin not that flesh and blood is bad but that that we in when we function in the flesh we are functioning according to the world's order that is under the sway of the wicked one this had to have been a moment where satan possibly thought he was winning because jesus said nothing of the forsaking when he spoke to his disciples in fact he said the opposite he said he would not be alone but he experiences aloneness and I think that there is a reason that that this was hidden from him in his human form but I wonder and I'm just speculating how could God speak to something that is not reality to him sin sin is not reality now 
let me, if you're having a hard time tracking with what I'm saying, it's because I don't, don't know what I'm talking about right now. No, I'm just joking. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a quote, I wanted to just share it with you, um, it, that I think gives us an incredible explanation for those mysterious and very terrifying words which Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, and many will come to me, in Matthew chapter 7, uh, many will come to me and they will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this or that in your name? Cast out demons, you know. And Jesus doesn't deny that they did lots of things in his name, but he says something fascinating. He says, he says and I will say to them, away from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. I never knew you. One of the most heartbreaking words was to one of his own disciples. When he says, Lord, show us the Father and it will be sufficient for us. And he says, Philip, have I been with you so long that still you do not know me? Keep in mind that the heart of the gospel is to know Jesus. Paul said, I have counted all things as rubbish. That I have released the past and I pushed toward the goal that I might know him. And, and Paul argued that knowing him meant a willingness to even participate in his suffering. Because to, to participate in his suffering, if that meant knowing him more, would be better than any treasure on earth. And I think that that speaks to us because none of us really are like, yes, if I can know Jesus, let me su if it means suffering, let it happen. But that should be, not that we're asking to suffer. It's just saying, we will do whatever. That it's, this is the one place where we should actually be obsessive. <laughs> have you ever been obsessive to the point where you're suffering? I have. Sadly, it's not very often about Jesus. One of the things that my prayer is over my sabbatical is I learn once again. I, 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 I find myself continually coming back to the lukewarm church, and I feel like those words are to me right now of just that, you know, what do I do if I've, if I've lost my intimacy with you? If I, if I feel like I know a lot about you, but I don't know you right now, Lord. And I'm wondering if who I am right now is someone that you know, or am I being s something that you never intended me to be? And we help me sort that out. And are we humble enough to even ask those kinds of hard questions of Jesus? And, and when he says to the lukewarm church, what does he say? He says, listen, this is what you are. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other, but because you're neither, I'm, I'm, you know, you're on the verge of me literally vomiting you out of my mouth, which is not a very nice thing to say to someone. But he, he doesn't leave it hopeless. He says, listen, remember what it was like when you first fell in love with me. Repent, change directions, and repeat those first acts. Remember, repent, repeat. What a beautiful reality um, that, that as long as there is breath in our lungs, there is the ability to know and be known. So here's, here's what I believe Jesus is saying, and it came through, I've, I've been sharing with you guys the last few times I've taught this, I've been reading this, this book by Thomas Merton, and he, he gave, I feel like he gave me an insight into, um, into what is meant when Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. And what Merton believed, and I, 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 I'm having a hard time 
poking holes in this interpretation is that, is that Jesus is speaking specifically to the fact that our tendency as fallen human beings is to embrace a self of illusion rather than the person, the man, the woman, the boy, the girl that God created you to be. And Satan's continual design is to get us to define our lives for ourselves. But the problem is, is that to define your life for yourself, to refuse the good death, to, to refuse to allow God, who is your Creator, to, to help you become the very thing that He made you to be, is to live an illusion, to live a false life. And Merton calls that the shadow self is the essence of the sin life. And he says that sin life must die with Christ. For sin is conquered on the cross. Not just this or that thing that you do wrong, but the sin nature was conquered on the cross. And so this idea of the illusory self, this is what Merton says. He says, he says, every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. This is the man, the woman that I want myself to be, but who cannot exist because God doesn't know anything about him or her. And to be unknown of God is altogether too much privacy. Too much isolation. So, I... I hope you see where I'm going with that. Is that, is that what, what Merton is saying is I think he's helping us understand that what Jesus is saying to that person, it's the heartbreak of Jesus saying to the person, not that he didn't know them. He's just saying what you are, what you, choose, what you chose to be had nothing to do with what I created you to be. And so the person that you, you have been is not anyone that I know because it's not real and I'm the truth. I'm the ground of being. I am the ground of reality. And you chose to live a life of, uh, that is unreal. It's, it's an illusion. Now, illusory selves should not be a mystery for us in this modern age. What it should do is create some legitimate fear and trembling in the fact that we are a culture that embraces, celebrates, promotes illusion. An empire of illusion. A, 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 a government built on, on not facts, but often fiction. The self-love and the self-promotion of our modern age has to be one of the most heartbreaking realities for our Lord to look at and much of what is happening in the world it's, it's, he knows nothing of it because it, it's not real. And he's about reality. But the good news is because of that reality, our willingness to embrace non-reality, it's the whole reason he came. And if it wasn't for this statement, I would be really, really terrified by our willingness to embrace illusions. Because I believe that the cross change the trajectory for those of us that continue to embrace the illusory self because I promise you that each one of us will do it through our lives but that doesn't mean that we should 
and it doesn't and just because we're forgiven doesn't mean that it won't create a sense of separation throughout our Christian lives because we're so often worried about who's going to heaven and who's going to hell and final separation that, that we don't often as Christians think about yes you can be saved but that doesn't mean that you are living a victorious life and it doesn't mean that you're experiencing the presence and the power of Jesus because you're still even though you died with him and have been resurrected in the newness of life you keep returning to the illusions I've seen it in my own life and I, as I've entered into a season of deep reflection as I move into the second half of my life and that's me assuming I'm going to live to 100, and I really don't want to. Like, I'm, I actually pray, Lord, take me home before it depends. And then I'm like, unless, they, unless depends come next year, then I'll, I'll deal with it for a while. But, you know, I just feel like it's a good marker. Um, but uh, but this, is, this is the thing, is that Jesus' entrance into the world, we have to remember that the gospel and the cross and why the cross must remain central is because the cross is a continual reminder that God's gospel is down to earth. It's earthy. It's not a ladder. It's God come down to us. And the cross is, is, is not a place that we climb. <laughs> it's a place where we die with Christ and where Christ died for us. Jesus here is once again fulfilling the prophetic Scriptures for He even proclaims the words that are spoken by the psalmist. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? Why are You so far from saving Me from the words of My groaning? And we should not read that psalm as, as the psalmist saying, I don't know God and I'm not known by God. But what the psalmist is saying is I am experiencing deep sense of isolation. And the fact that he says my God says that he knows who he belongs to. But it's not what he's experiencing. And I think each one of us have had those seasons, I know I have, where I have found myself in the shade of God's hand. The, the warmth of His presence, the consuming fire that for us as believers is not a, a, a it, it, yes, it's a terrible thing to fall in the hands of God because it, our God is a consuming fire. That consuming fire for us as Christians is the purifying reality of His holy love. But there are some times when that fire feels like it's gone cold, but it says that He will not snuff out a smoking wick. You know when you blow your candle out and it's still smoking? That Jesus actually has the ability to fan to flame a candle that's been blown out. That He doesn't pinch it so it stops smoking. He waves it back into flame. But sometimes we find ourselves like we're just a smoldering wick and we're like, I feel like I'm not producing. There's nothing worse than a fire that doesn't produce heat. It only produces smoke. Have you ever had... That's kind of my gift of making outdoor fires is I'm, I seem to be really gifted at making really smoky. Have you ever like got bad wood where it's like all I do is, I mean, I smell like a campfire. I guess that's cool, but there's no actual flame and we're freezing. Um, no, Jesus allows us at times to feel His silence. But 
We wouldn't talk about his silence if we hadn't first experienced his presence. What does it mean to be forsaken? I, you know, I would have said as a, as a young boy um, that I wouldn't have ever used the word forsaken. It wouldn't have been a word that I would use. But I, but I did understand the word abandon. I knew what it I knew what it meant to be left. And I think that that, that feeling is, is a horrible feeling. There was once when I was a little boy, my mom had a close friend, um, and this woman um, had an extremely violent husband, so violent that his first wife, he broke her jaw and spent five years in prison for attempted murder. Um, and, you know, and this woman that he married, um, who is a dear friend of my mom, she babysat us sometimes, but this, this man, his name, I remember his name was Jim, and he was terrifying, and he had a violent temper, and there was one time where he came home when Terry was babysitting um, me and my brother, which was really horrible, is that I have uh, two specific memories as a child uh, of hiding under the bed with my brother, um, once from my stepdad and once from this man, Jim, is that he came in because Terry was threatening to leave because he had gotten violent and had hit her in front of her boys. And, uh, and he, he bust into the house and she told, she told uh, I just remember her face, I was in third grade, and she looked at me and Jared and she said, hide. And this sense of unbelievable abandonment for a child to feel so unsafe, so alone. And I remember hiding in the darkness under that bed and weeping but trying to hold my breath so that he wouldn't hear me while we heard him yelling at his wife and, and pushing her around, but luckily he stormed out and nothing happened. But just those moments of terror were enough to be shaping. And I had the same thing happen with my, with my first stepdad uh, the night that my mom left him. And, and those experiences are those horrific moments where one feels all alone in the universe. Those moments that can age us in a moment, the moments of feeling unbelievably unsafe, abandoned, abandoned like the words of Dante, all who enter here, that is into hell, abandon all hope. And Jesus in this moment felt the weight of human sin. The separation that it creates. Sin separates. We know that, right? Like, we don't need a metaphysical explanation of what is actually happening to Jesus here to understand that when we do things we shouldn't do, it creates a, a disconnect in our lives, not only it creates a disconnect within ourselves, but it creates a disconnect with others. Have you ever done something and you, you won't confess it and all of a sudden there is now a wall, a barrier, an unspoken barrier between you and that person in which you are unwilling to confess the violation of that relationship? I, I remember those feelings as a boy, you know, lying to my mom and then not confessing it. And the way that it would make me feel weird, it, it immediately created a barrier between my mom and I because I just, every time I was around her, I just felt guilt. And she could sense that I was being weird, so that created awkwardness. And, and it wasn't until I came clean that that relational 
restoration or as spouses when spouse when a spouse is being dishonest with their spouse and and you know when you live with someone long enough you kind of can get a sick like Darcy knows when something's up with me it's not even a point for me to even try to hide anything from her because I feel like she it's like I'm like do you have some sort of secret key to my brain because it's like she's like did you buy this and all, all of a sudden there'll be like a little kid I'm like no maybe yes <laughs> I'm like wait something we work on you know we, it's nothing worse than a married couple living in the dynamic of rebellious child nagging parent. Um, <laughs> but, but the separate, when there's, when there's co- unrepentant conflict, a fight where you just, have you ever, I don't know, for those of you who are married, that horrible feeling of getting in a brutal fight and then going to bed without it being resolved? How you can be right next to that person and it still feels like outer darkness and all you can feel is the sickening in your stomach that I blew it and it says don't let the sun go down on your anger and give a foothold to the devil it's the illusion that somehow not repenting not apologizing not doing the right thing is better than the awkwardness of humbling ourselves well Jesus took all of that anything you've ever felt and then, you know, add to that every horrible thing that anyone has ever done in human history and ever will do in human history. I, I'm reading this book right now um, called We Cease to Understand the World. It might be the best novel I've read in years. That's an exploration of the underbelly of um, the greatest scientific discoveries of the 20th century. For example, Fritz Haber, the great chemist who created the Haber um, the Haber method. He literally is said, called the, the scientist who, who made bread from air because he figured out how to harness oxygen, which created fertilizer that allowed the world to go from 1 billion at the end of the 19th century to 7.5 billion in 100 years because of his fertilization process. And that fertilizing process was what allowed uh, us to end famine in many places in the world obviously it still happens but not to the level that it was happening in the world before and this incredible life-giving reality he also is the father of chemical warfare and was single-handedly responsible for as a german soldier unleashing the chlorine bomb on the french troops in belgium in world war one that killed sixty thousand um, men every animal every 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 person in the village in miles the most horrific thing you've ever seen in your life and his very fertilizer that has allowed so much life was used by Hitler to gas the Jews in those horrible chambers in which they tried to eradicate the Jewish people it shows the horrific realities of what the human heart is capable of doing and I, I, I was reading about this in this book and I just like, what is, oh my gosh, this is insane. It's like you can't, it's like even the good things we do are still bad. Who will save us from this body of death? But the sins of Fritz Haber is the same sins that we all commit because human civilization is built upon violence. And this is the point where Jesus said, 
I'll take, I will take Dr. Haber's guilt. I will take the horrors of human civilization and I will take it all at once into myself. I don't think we take into consideration the intensity of what Jesus is doing here. When Jesus cries out these words, let me just say, I believe the forsaking has already happened. And the reason I say that is because Jesus says, I only speak those things which the Father gives me to speak. Whatever separation had occurred, I believe it has already occurred. And when He was truly separated, He did not speak. But now, I think it would maybe be better for us to read this statement as a question. Why did you forsake me? Please don't ever leave me again. Or even maybe more importantly, what if we viewed it as a victory? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We have yet to see a righteous man forsaken, said David. It's because David never saw a righteous man. And the only truly righteous man in human history is the one who is truly forsaken. Now when we talk about the Son being forsaken by the Father, we must be careful in how we perceive this relationship. There are some theologians that claim all sorts of things about what's going on. That Jesus is intervening on behalf um, on, on our behalf, he is our mediator, but that mediation is somehow the gentle, humble son getting between us sinful, rebellious humans and an angry dad. And maybe if you had an angry, stern father, it's like that's kind of how you view this interaction. But no, John Stott, in one of the greatest books ever written on the cross, literally just called the cross of Christ said this, we must not speak of God punishing Jesus or Jesus persuading God, for to do so is to set them over against each other as if they acted independently from each other or were even in conflict with each other. The Father did not lay on the Son an ordeal He was reluctant to bear. Nor did the Son extract from the Father a salvation He was reluctant to bestow. When he says, Father, forgive them, remember what I said, it's because it's the Father's heart to forgive. And that is consistent from Genesis to Revelation. I actually would go as far as to push back even on the concept that Jesus bore the wrath of God on our behalf. The reason I hold to that is because actually there is not a single passage in Scripture that ever says it. But it's so commonly taught in the church that it's something that we've just, we've just accepted blindly even though there's not one verse that says that Jesus took the wrath of God. What we are told is that Jesus took the judgment into Himself that we deserve. That He is the sacrificial Lamb. But a great question, uh, Gary Brashear has brought this up. He's like, he, he said, when the priest sacrificed the lambs without blemish, as, a, as a, a means of atonement for the children of Israel, the priests weren't angry at the lamb. It wasn't like a, like a 
you know, it's not like the story of Dionysus where the, you know, the, the, the women tear, tear the young prince um, to, to pieces in, a, in an, an ecstatic rage. It wasn't like some sort of primal, you know, archetypal religion. This is, this is the reality of a loving God who is the sacrificial lamb is accepted. The lamb is killed, but the priest isn't mad at it. And I think that this idea that the Father's like, okay, Jesus, I think the way that we picture it is that Jesus takes sin all at once on the cross, which I would argue that the entire incarnation speaks to Jesus entering into sinful humanity. That's why I believe he was called the Son of Sorrows. Every time he healed, every time he did a miracle, he was taking into himself brokenness and bringing life. And on the cross, you know, the way that I think we often think of it is like, Jesus all of a sudden has sin on him like a backpack or something. And then the father's just got, got like a, some sort of like just flamethrower and it's like, you know, just like, I hate you. Oh, I forgot you were my son. That's not what happened. Sin is not something that God can't be in the presence of. It says that God is not capable of sinning. But God is constantly getting in front of sin from Genesis to Revelation. So, I don't really care. And I could be wrong, Jesus experienced wrath, but it's not... If that's a view that you hold, it's fine. Just know that it's not in the Scripture. But do not pit the Father against the Son. Because the Godhead cannot be divided. We worship one God. And the whole Godhead is involved in our in our atonement. They play different roles, but the whole God, the Son experiences the weight and the pain and the suffering, human suffering, and the weight of sin, but the Father experiences the grief of His Son. Just like Mary hurt. Do you think that, who do you think it was easier for? Jesus staying on the cross? Or Mary to watch her son be tortured. I would rather be tortured than see my child tortured. But I would say neither is preferable and it hurt everyone involved. That's my point. When we hear the cry of Jesus, we have to ask the question of what is it that He is accomplishing? It's the mystery of guilt being transferred. How can I give someone my guilt? It's a really interesting thing. How can I give someone my guilt? And for Jesus to take the guilt of humanity into Himself, there is something... Grace is a mysterious thing. Because when you really think about grace, when you really think about forgiveness, there is a permissiveness, if you will, in it. Now, just because I forgive someone for something they did and I just choose to not hold it against them, it doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for doing the wrong thing. You can break the law and be forgiven for it, but it doesn't mean you might not go to jail. Um, and I think that that's, that's a reality. Cause and effect is a reality. But Jesus is the only truly innocent scapegoat in human history. He has become, in this moment, the one for the many and the many and the one. 
He is standing in our place. There have been many attempts to understand the costliness of sacrifice, but they all together fall short because this is where the mystery, where there is no analogy, where it breaks down. It's God hates sin because it robs Him of what He loves, which is people. But Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. All I can tell you for sure is what I said last night, and I will say again and again and again, it's Martin Luther's great statement, everything that needs to be done has already been done in Jesus. Our sins absorbed into His body. This is what 1 Peter 2.24 says, who Himself bore our sins in His own body. He bore the guilt of our sins so that guilt and shame could be put away. So that forgiveness once and for all could be obtained. We sing that song, Forsaken, in you, um, uh, in you we are forgiven. In you we are forgiven. Our sins are forgotten. Paid in full. In the verse, I, 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 when I wrote that song, it's actually, I took that from a, um, the, uh, most of the lyrics I took from a really old, old uh, Christian poem from the 14th century. And I love that the, he, there's a line, he says, um, uh, my sin died with you. What a beautiful picture. The moment that sin died with the death of the one who is life. God being transformed into our image that we might be transformed into His. God becoming like us at our lowest place, the place of our sin. This meant He went so low He could get under the lowest sinner and lift them up. How beautiful is the love of God and yet how serious my sin. In closing, I just want to consider the mystery of darkness. Because within the Apostles' Creed, there's one kind of controversial section and that is, and He descended into hell. Which is, it's true that there's, there's you know, there's a couple, there is a passage that talks about Jesus descending in uh, descending into the depths of the earth and setting the captives free. And there's lots of, lots of thoughts around that, that, that there was a holding place for the saints, the Abraham's bosom. Jesus uses the parable of Lazarus and you know, the rich man is in, is in torment while Lazarus, the poor man, watches him in torment and, 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 he, and he asks, um, he asks, he asks, uh, Abraham to have him send over a drink of water and he said he, it's, it's an uncrossable chasm but whatever is saying only and I know too that we have another miraculous mystery not only was it miraculous that the land was darkened like some kind of total eclipse um, but sin is darkness but the land became like outer darkness it became a place of total isolation. And I think that it is fair to say that there are many things about the cross of Christ that actually, it's funny that it's the, the emblem for us that's the most beautiful emblem, even though it's an emblem of incredible torment and torture. So, so repulsive the Romans wouldn't even talk about it. And yet for us, it's the thing that many of you wear around your neck. And some of you, like me, have tattooed somewhere on your skin. It's a symbol that's used in our hospitals as a sign of life. But it's life that comes through death, isn't it? And they 
it says the lonely hours, there was this hours of silence. And my belief is that it is an insight into hell because hell is separation from God. Now, here's the thing. Separation from God. When it says in um, 2 Thessalonians that, uh, that those that reject the gospel will be separated from the, they will be removed from the presence of God. That, and we think of hell as a place where God is not. Um, that's how, I mean, I was always taught, like basically hell is a place of absolute and total isolation. But I would argue that there, first of all, that flies against the reality that there is no place that God isn't. And that hell itself is a place created, we are told. It was not created for humans. It was created for the devil and his angels. But it is a place. And it is a place under the control of God. Why is God called a consuming fire? Because He's holy. Hell is a place of darkness, but it's also a place it's a place where the fire is a black flame. There's no light, but it burns. It's outer darkness, and yet it's a place where the thirsty can't be satisfied, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's the next statement that Jesus made from the cross? I thirst. You know, this is the thing. Hell is a place where the fire consumes, but I believe that God functioning just as He is. It's not, His wrath is not, I turn my love off and now all you get is my anger. His wrath is His love violated. And hell is not a place where love doesn't exist because God is love and God is the one who puts the parameters on hell because it's His mercy by which He says, sin shall go no farther. It's also a reality that those that are in hell have chosen to reject the Messiah. And what that creates is blindness. So it's not that it's a place where the fire has no light. It's a place where those that are tormented within that fire have no vision. And it's not a place where God is not. It's a place where God is not known. And that, my friends, is far more terrifying than utter aloneness away from all people. You know, in The Great Divorce, uh, there's a scene where Napoleon is in this purgatory place. But the more... Uh, the, he, Lewis creates a hell that, in which sin can continue to increase. And as it increases, people become more and more distanced from one another. I, I actually disagree with that. I believe hell is absolutely a final limitation on sin. It is the, it's, it shall go no further. Now, Lewis actually geniusly plays on that because at the end, we discover when Lewis himself is talking to George MacDonald, his hero, asking him about this purgatory um, that, or this hell, that hell itself is um, because it has no reality, uh, it, because it's a, it's a place where people continue to live in the illusory self, that it actually is so small that it could come up through the smallest crack in the floor, which is a really profound and genius imagery of that it actually doesn't have the substance that we would have um, in new creation. 
where we live in the truth and in the light. But I think that the picture is this, is that hell is a means by which God is the good physician. Think of it more like a psychiatric ward, if you will, where God, where God contains those that choose to turn their vision inward upon themselves. And from their vantage point, all they feel is alone. But it's alone without escape. But that's not our reality. Outer darkness. He is bearing His cross. Went out to a place called the place of the skull. The outskirts of the city is where Jesus was crucified. In anguish. George MacDonald said this about hell and it's always struck me. It was such a beautiful, um, a beautiful way to speak of God's heart toward, uh, toward the lost, but also a, a, um, a terrifying um, imagery. He says, the outer darkness is but the most dreadful form of the consuming fire. The fire without light. The darkness visible. The black flame. God withdrawn Himself but not lost His hold. His face is turned away, but His hand is laid upon Him still. His heart has ceased to beat into the man's heart, but He keeps him alive by His fire. I want to be kept alive by God's fire, but I want to see the flame. The difference for those in hell and heaven is for us, the fire of God's love is that which actually brings forth even more and more life. Think of the mythological creature of the phoenix it's the new birth. But the picture of hell is a consuming fire that, but without ever being relieved of the blindness and the sense of isolation. Why would anyone choose isolation when Jesus already took care of isolation? Solitude is not separation from others. True scriptural solitude is going, is going to God that we might be filled up, that we might go back to into people. Isolation, separation, abandonment, where there is no hope is to just simply to say no to the only cure for the disease that we call sin. And Jesus is that cure. He is the antibody. <laughs> he is the antitype. As, Jesus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And when we look to Him, we will be saved. We don't have to be afraid of separation from God because God was already separated for you so that you could be with Him now. Don't reject that which God has already accomplished for you. Because what hope is there for us if we say no to the only thing that actually can bring us life? I will not waver from the reality that it is possible to say no to God's yes. And so I encourage you tonight, say yes. Gaze upon Him with that, the gaze of the soul, faith. Believe in His saving power. Thank Jesus that He took your guilt and my guilt into Himself so that we could live with Him in peace, in joy, celebration. What kind of God takes the punishment of sinful, rebellious humanity into Himself? Our God, Jesus Christ. Amen?